Abolition. Abolition. African Americans were wealthy for 246 years. For 100 more years, a patchwork of laws excluded them from building wealth, and discrimination continues today. The wealth gap has grown so large over so many years, it would take something truly radical to close it. How do you close this gap, this huge gap in wealth between whites you and don't. blacks? Reparations. Right? Reparations. How much are we talking about here, Tanasi? Well, we don't actually know, although I, I will take Good. a check on behalf of myself. Is anyone on the stage for reparations for slavery for African Americans? Are you? I am. The Bible says we shall be and must be repairers of the breach. And a breach has occurred, and we have to acknowledge that. We'll pay reparations on my soul.
abolition, 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 abolition. You just heard a clip from Explain Racial Wealth Gap by Netflix, followed by spoken word legend Gil Scott Haran, who will pay reparations on my soul. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by four prison, profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org. My name is Max Parthas. I'm joined by our co-host, Yusuf Hassan. Peace, Yusuf. Hey, peace, Max. Peace and blessings be upon you and our entire listening audience all around the world. Amen. Uh, Let's also go ahead and bring in, if you don't mind, Yusuf, unmuting them. Let's bring in our guest and guest co-host tonight, right away, social activist and slavery abolitionist, Otis Griffith. Peace and welcome to Abolitionist today, Otis. Good to have you here, man. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Okay, yeah, it's a pleasure to be back here, man, doing what I do, pushing pushing abolition. <laughs> I just had a quick conversation with somebody asking me, was I still doing it? I told him, go to go to one of my proudest accomplishments. I, once I figured out what hashtags were, age is a big lie. I think I got to run it about four and a half, five years. I've schooled a few people on it, tell them, go, go to the, note, the cliff notes. I got it all under Abe's big lie. I'll stop there and be happy to join y'all this evening. Oh, no doubt, man, brother. it's good so to have you good. Here. So good to hear your voice, man. Oh, mm-hmm. gee, man. Such a long For time, those, man. Actually, the first time uh, that you and I hosted – a radio program about slavery abolition was in combination with Otis. So it was the three of us that, that did that together, <clears throat> which Absolutely. is pretty cool, man. So here we are some years later. We all go back a minute. And tonight Otis is going to help us unravel some of these wicked webs. Last week we heard a pre-recorded discussion with our sponsors and partners from Jailhouse Lawyers Speak. In this week's episode, we cover multiple connected issues, all of them dangling from false narratives. We're talking about good cops, black-on-black crime, slavery reparations, and the infamous 13th Amendment. But before we get into that, let's, of course, check in, as we always do, with Yusuf and Otis this week and get your opinion on the new addition to our abolitionist music playlist. Max, you you know I'm I'm a big-time fan of uh, Gil Scott Heron, big-time, you know, I listen to him at least three, four times a day, different tracks of his. And that Who Pay Reparations on My Soul just happens to be one of my favorites. You know, so I'm super amped up right now. I hear that, brother. Hopefully well, the listeners are that. too. Otis? He was a soundtrack ahead, to Otis. my, my he was a soundtrack to my activism and my youth, man. So you know you're bringing me back, tying it all together. I'm, I'm loving this clip. Oh, no doubt, man. Uh, and, and because we're going to be talking about reparations, I thought that would be a really good way to start out the program. Uh, for those that don't know, uh, we play a few tracks every week here on Abolition Today, and you can find all of that at YouTube, our YouTube ch- uh, channel, which is youtube.com slash abolitiontoday. 
there's a few things that has been happening this week that I wanted to bring up in the beginning of the program, and I figured maybe you guys also might have a couple things on your list. Um, you said we'll start. Would you? Yeah. So this week went so went by so fast, you know, that you know when we when we got off the air. Last Sunday, it seems like that was 15 minutes ago, man. Just all kinds of things happening throughout the week, as always. And then, of course, you and I communicating throughout the week. And it's been a great week, I'd like to say. It's been a great week. You know, I've been very busy, but it's been great. And we're getting closer and closer to making uh, certain announcements on air. Just not ready to make those uh, announcements as of yet. But... Certain announcements are going to be made shortly involving, you know, our mission and, you know, uh, repealing and replacing the 13th Amendment. So stay tuned for that. No doubt. What about you, Brother Otis? Uh, this week, anything memorable for you? Oh, yeah, lots going on, especially that reparation circle. And, you know, my purpose for being in that circle is to try to get a voice in there that's talking about the importance of that 13th Amendment exception clause. So, you know, I'm in there doing what I do, brother. <laughs> There's a couple yeah. of things that have stood up for me <clears throat> this week, stood out for me. Uh, one, I had a long conversation with a prison abolitionist, and it was an amicable conversation, and there was a lot of things that we agreed on. But for me, I, I just wanted to find out the things that we didn't agree on, so maybe I could build some bridges. And I did find out a few things in that uh, regard. And uh, hopefully we're going to bring them back on to our program. We're talking about Rebecca Hensley, who was on a couple of weeks ago. And we're going to bring her back on the program where we can have the conversation again, maybe expanded with uh, our host, Yusuf, and the listeners can hear it. But she also put out something recently that I think is is mind-blowing, man, when you think about it. It's time to update Angola, and it comes from Rebecca Hensley, who is working with those people in uh, Angola prison. She said the administration says it's trying to reopen the prison per the governor's plan to reopen everything else. So they ordered the field workers to go to the fields. Now, mind the language is very important, people. So they ordered the field workers to go to the fields. But the field workers bucked saying if other prisoners aren't back to work, we shouldn't be either. The administration locked down the prison and went to the fields with the rank officer carrying guns. They are always horse-riding guards, carrying shotguns when prisoners work in the fields. But this resistance has been going on intermittently ever since COVID-19 hit. Today's action is ratcheting everything up several notches so far as we can tell. But we cannot be sure what is going on to report it to the media because anybody we can talk to is themselves locked down. If media calls, the ball will be spun. But if people connect to Camp D, prisoners call for a wellness check, policy demands that they get a response, whether they actually get it or not. We want them to know we, are, we know what they're doing. And that's the message that came out basically saying here in Angola, and we have talked about Angola in detail, a former prison plantation named after the people of the nation of Angola, where they got their slaves from, 
has cotton fields and things like that right there on this land, which is larger than Manhattan Island, and they are forcing prisoners to work in a pandemic sitting on horses with freaking shotguns. Put that in your mind. Yeah, Max. Uh, you know, I actually got a call from Angola prison this morning. I have to be in the shower, so I missed the call. And, you know, hopefully I can get a hold of him or he can get a hold of me, you know, sometime soon, because I'm sure it was him calling me to give me an update because I haven't spoken to him in a few days. And we usually speak every day, you know, so hopefully I can get an update on that coming soon. But, you know, and he always refers to it, you know, it's officially called Louisiana State Prison, but they call it, you know, the last slavery plantation, LSP, last slavery plantation. And people have seen, you know, images of it in movies, TV shows, everything. And, I mean, literally when you drive by there, it looks just like you would imagine what was going on in the 1600s and 1700s. It looks just like it. The only difference is this is a state-run institution as opposed to it being, you know, some private owner's property. Yeah, terrible. Otis, any thoughts on that? I know I'm just saying it, it coincides with what, what we've run into on the side with the work I do with AGOS. I have some people who have uh, family inside of parchment, so you know it's not an isolated thing you're talking about. Yeah, that's, right. that's about it. Thanks, Otis. Well, there was another thing that stood out for me. Uh, remember our family from Amen, the 13th New Jersey, uh, are working diligently uh, to get the anti-slavery language put into the state constitution. It would make them the first state, New Jersey, the first state to do so, which would also make me proud as a native New Jerseyan who's now uh, living in the South. But anyway, uh, they were seeking to get the support from the Hoboken City Council. And on July 8th, a resolution standing with ACR 145 and abolishing slavery in New Jersey, the board voted unanimously. So let's give a round of applause to them, brothers and sisters, that are making That's things right. happen out there and setting up models we can follow. New Jersey is about to be the first state to actually abolish slavery with no caveat the first time. That's pretty cool. Um, Yusuf? Yeah, that would be great. You know, it was great watching that video of it. And like you, like you mentioned, it would just be a great thing to have that it's picking up momentum. I'm curious as to uh, what's happening in South Jersey because South Jersey, it's a completely different world than northern New Jersey. You know, it's a completely different world. And, you know, that area or most of New Jersey is referred to as the up south. You know, so I'm going to check in with uh, Dennis and others that are part of that movement and see how things are going in southern you know, portions of the state when we start talking Gloucester County and Hunterdon County, or not Hunterdon County, uh, Atlantic County and some of the other uh, Cumberland County, those counties, you know, uh, are known to have large uh, KKK membership down there and 
You know, I've always heard rumors about a large KKK rally that they hold every year in Millville, New Jersey. I don't know if it's true, but I've always heard about it. You know, some people said it's true. Some people just mention it like I mentioned it. But, yeah, I'm really curious as to what's going on down there because, you know, that's really it's really going to matter, you know, because you're going to need statewide support for this. But it's a great thing coming out of Hoboken, New Jersey. So I'm definitely pleased with that, Max. Indeed. Uh, Otis, any commentary on that? No, not, not really. My experience up in, in New Jersey came uh, later on in the Montclair, South Orange area. But uh, I'll, I'll let you go on because it would take too long to weave it in. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's okay, brother. You're going to get your opportunity real quick, as a matter of fact. Uh, On our list of things to do today is discuss reparations uh, in the context of slavery, slavery abolitionists. And uh, I want to start, we'll listen to a three-minute clip that came out from Capitol Hill, and it's titled, Heated and Emotional Debate on Capitol Hill About Reparations. So we'll listen to that, and then when we come back on the other side, uh, Otis, I want you to tell us uh, what it is you've been doing for the past couple of years. You mentioned it here a couple of times. Um, what has you been doing for the past couple of years who you've been working with and what your goals are towards uh, reparations? But in the meanwhile, here you go. Former Vice President Joe Biden is facing backlash tonight after what he said, Congress needing to work together, the ability to work with others. But Biden citing segregationist senators as examples of people he's worked with in the past, calling them mean, but that he worked with them. His opponents pouncing tonight, and all of this comes just as the debate over reparations takes center stage on the Hill. Terry Moran in Washington. In a packed hearing room, an emotional debate. Should the federal government pay billions of dollars in reparations to African Americans who are descended from slaves as a way to make amends for the atrocity of American slavery? Slavery is the original sin. Slavery has never received an apology. This hearing, the first on the issue in a decade, actor Danny Glover and Democratic Senator and presidential candidate Cory Booker making the case for reparations. But even before this hearing began, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell weighing in and sparking controversy. I don't think reparations for something that happened 150 years ago for whom none of us currently living are responsible is a good idea. Uh, We've, you know, tried to deal with our original sin of slavery by fighting a civil war, by passing uh, landmark civil rights legislation. Uh, we've elected an African-American president. That touched the nerve. Writer Ta-Nehisi Coates firing back. For a century after the Civil War, black people were subjected to a relentless campaign of terror, a campaign that extended well into the lifetime of Majority Leader McConnell. This debate coming on the same day Vice President Joe Biden drew fire from fellow Democrats for his comments at a fundraiser last night. Recalling a bygone era of civility in Washington, Biden spoke of two segregationist senators, saying of one, Herman Talmadge of Georgia, one of the meanest guys I ever knew. You go down the list of all these guys. Well, guess what? At least there was some civility. We got things done. And Biden recalling the white supremacist Senator James O. Eastland of Mississippi. He never called me boy. He always called me son. Several of Biden's rivals in the campaign stunned by his comments, including Senator Kamala Harris. To coddle the reputation of segregationists, of people who, if they had their way, I would literally not be standing here as a member of the United States Senate, is, I think, um, 
it's just it's misinformed and it's wrong. Terry Moran with us live in Washington tonight. And Terry, the Biden campaign now responding to this controversy? That's right, David. Biden campaign advisor Anita Dunn saying he wasn't praising those men. Quote, the point of the story is that you have to be able to work with people, even if they hold positions repugnant to you, in order to make some progress. David? Terry, thank you. Hi, everyone. George Stephanopoulos here. Thanks for checking out the ABC News YouTube channel. If you'd like to get more videos, show highlights, and watch live events, former Vice President Joe Biden is All right, guys, that's the end of the clip. You don't need to hear the rest of that. That's just a promo. Um, I want to I read a quote real quick before we get into this. And the quote is from Dresden James. It says, when a well-packaged web of lies has been sold gradually to the masses over generations, the truth will seem utterly preposterous and its speaker a raving lunatic. So tonight you're going to hear some raving lunatics <laughs> talking some utterly <laughs> preposterous stuff about reparations. There was so much in that conversation of three minutes that stood out for me. Uh, I want to give Otis the, the final discussion on it. So let's start with you, Yusuf. What, what was it, or what do you like to say about what you just heard or the topic of reparations overall? You know, I want to step to the side just a little bit about there's, there's an article that I posted from Forbes magazine dealing with uh, reparations, and the title of the article is very misleading, and I actually reached out to the author and let her know that that was my opinion of the title of the article as well. The title of the article is, California Assembly Passes Reparations Bill. Now, to the average person, that sounds like, okay, we, you know, they, they tossing around the idea, let's get some money. In reality, the bill was just to see if they can create a task force to study how reparations could be implemented statewide. And something that we have to take into consideration, uh, this this measure was passed 60 to 14, so that means 14 people voted against it. So Californians need to take a look into that to see who the 14 people who were against just creating the task force. Then on top of it, the bill still has to pass on to the state Senate, and then it still has to be signed into law. And if the bill becomes law, California will be the first state to create an official task force studying the issue. That's how they're playing us. The false narrative that began with the title of the article, California Assembly Passes Reparations Bill, makes people think something's really getting done. But when in reality, nothing's getting done. And so that's primarily what I heard in that three-minute clip, a whole bunch of nothing being done. I'm not even going to address uh, Mitch McConnell, you know, because this is a family-oriented educational show, so I'm going to keep my comments about Mitch McConnell to myself, and I'll pass on that, Max. Okay. Um, I hear you, brother. There's a few things that did stand out for me, though. Um, one, the debate is about reparations, yes or no. At no point is it even questioned whether or not slavery actually ended. There's just uh, there's an assumption off the bat that the 13th Amendment did what it said it was going to do. There's assumption off the bat 
that the Emancipation Proclamation actually freed the slaves. At no point right. do they even entertain the idea that slavery might still be going on right now. Chattel slavery through the prison system, where instead of being a lifelong slave, you're only a slave as long as you're sentenced for. And, and then, then after you get out, many go through the same problems of not having their rights given back to them. So that was the first thing. It's, it's a yes or no, are you for or against reparations? And there's nobody arguing the point that maybe slavery isn't over. Uh, then they, they right. gave a price tag in the billions. You know, I heard um, the brother who is the the former owner of BET, what's his name, Bob Johnson? Bob Johnson Bob was talking Johnson. about trillions. Right. But in this clip that we heard, they were talking about billions. So there's a, a number of numbers <laughs> that people have added to this. I've seen that Cory Booker's pro-reparations and spoke on it. Mitch McConnell, of course, in that clip, I don't know, if, I don't remember if they played that part or not, but he said that, hey, yeah, we elected did. a black president, <laughs> you know, we elected a black president, and that's your reparations. Um, and Tanahashi Coates, of course, wrote extensively on this subject and uh, testified before Congress on this particular thing. So he's certainly pro-reparation. And Joe Biden, you know, when he talk about Joe Biden, with his segregationist friends having the nerve to say something like, he never called me boy, he always called me sir. Have you looked in the mirror lately, Joe Biden? <laughs> There's a reason right. he ain't call you boy. That's one of the benefits of being white. People don't call you boy. Uh, but anyway, those things all stood out for me. And, you know, my stance is very simple, and then I'm going to pass the mic over to Otis. My stance is this. If slavery has not ended yet, then what are you getting paid for? What are you getting repaired for? Because you don't have an end date. And if you don't have an end date and this crime is still going on, if by any chance they give you anything, money, land, education, it doesn't matter. They are then able to ratchet up what they were doing already without any threat of anyone saying that, you know, they haven't paid for it or it's illegal because you never told them to stop doing it. So they're going to do it even worse. You're dooming your children to perpetual slavery with no recourse to the Constitution. And this is because in all of these uh, people who have, are supporting this, in their minds, slavery is over and done with. And they say this regardless of the movement that they hear all around them called the abolitionist movement. So that's what I've got to say about that. I'm going to pass the mic over to Brother Otis Griffin. Otis, you are unmuted again. There you go. Hey, look, I tell you what, instead of wasting a lot of time, let me tell you, I agree with the facts of all of what you all are saying, but I'm going to have a private conversation with you, Max, in public atmosphere. You and I first had this conversation about two years ago, and you know now what I've been doing for two years. And without name dropping, what I'm going to do is give some people while I'm talking some links to how you can have answers to what reparations would look like, why it's in your trillions. If you follow me on any of my public platforms, at Monty OG, it's public. You can put in my moniker in any topic, and you can find it because everything I do is public because I told Max years ago. I don't do private conversation on social media. It's really just a digital diary for me at 66 to confirm that my memory's intact. So what I'm going to say to you is 
From Here to Equality from Sandy Darity. There's a book that talks about that. And Mac knows uh, for about two years, I had the pleasure of being in proximity of him. So it even talks about the impact of the 13th. I also told Max that if you look at this in real time, if we can get this HR 40 changed to what we've been calling Darity Edits, it will be $12 million in that fund, but that $12 million will not be spent the way in Cobra and Locke wants to do it with a group of uh, selected uh, erudite activists with longevity. What it will be is a commission that actually goes out in the community and talks to people like Max Parthas that have been doing the work. And to show you what I'm talking about when I tell you, Max, why, why I put this kind of work in, I see the fruits of it because I know exactly how reparations came about in the discussion. I understand why, why some of the things that HR 40 need to be changed because if you've got people that are the cream of the crop of your people, the educated ones, those who have made it through civil rights and now got all the high places that represent you, why do they need to make two hundred to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in eighteen months to represent you when they already benefit from being the elite? There's something wrong with that picture. There's something wrong with it. I'm I'm too damn old to try to mince words about it. It is what it is. It's factual. And I don't, I don't, another thing I do, anytime somebody got a question for me, I use the hashtag receipts on us. Ask me the question. I'll send you the answer of what I believe is a source of my belief. I'm going to stop there, brother. There is a path to do reparations, and there is a way to make sure that they understand those 14 words of the of the 13th are not what uh, Professor Darrell uh, Scott called out of uh, Howard Inconsequential. They are the very essence of why it's legal to do what we see, what Michelle Alexander called mass incarceration, what we see as private prisons, what we see as cash bail. All of that is because it's legal. I'll stop there. No doubt. Max, if I can uh, jump in real quick. Yeah, because yeah, uh, so I just had to pull up HR 40 to, to refresh my recollection of what the three points that they're trying to assess. So HR 40, for those who aren't familiar, is basically this bill establishes the commission to study and develop reparation proposals for African Americans. The commission shall examine slavery and discrimination in the colonies and the United States from 1619 to the present and recommend appropriate remedies. Among other requirements, the commission shall identify, one, the role of federal and state governments in supporting the institution of slavery. Two, forms of discrimination in the public and private sectors against freed slaves and their descendants. And three, lingering negative effects of slavery on living African Americans in society. So, from what you stated earlier, Max, is absolutely factual. There's nothing in here that deals with, first of all, here's, here's my first issue is, how are they coming up with these phantom numbers? Hold on, hold on, Otis, you're going to get a chance to respond. Hold on one, hold on one second, Otis, you'll get a chance to respond. First I want to know is, how are they coming up with these phantom numbers? What is it based upon? 
that's the first thing. Then, as Max previously stated, where's the question about is this because this is what courts do when they do when you deal with a civil action. First thing they want to look at is has the wrong or the or the alleged wrong been stopped? Because you can't resolve something if it's still happening, if it's going to continue to happen. So there's no talk about the 13th. Just as Max just said, I don't even have to go through it again. Did the 13th Amendment abolish slavery? Or is there a form of it that's still allowed? Then we look at the Emancipation Proclamation. Is that factual? And all of the other things that came behind it, we look at all of that, and this H.R. 40, I understand the need to come up with a commission to study, but everybody just wants to sit around and just keep talking with no real resolutions being presented. That's what I'm seeing, uh, Max or Otis, whoever's going to speak next. Well, I, I was actually trying to interject to help you with that because I hear you talking, but what I'm saying to you without name dropping is the way uh, if you go if you edit uh, the phrase or if you you uh, email me or do whatever, Max can give you my information. If you go to a document called uh, Sandy Darity HR40 edits, it does exactly what you're talking about now. I just said to you, and I'm making this statement because I've been in the thick of this for three years, monitoring it. But I just about every talk show I know calling people out when I see them misrepresenting what they're doing. What I'm saying to you is HR 40 in its present state does not do any of what you're saying. And I'm saying to you that Dr. Darity, who just came out with the book From Here to Equality, that talks about reparations, that talks about how we got here, the last chapter is about reparations, but I told you it also talks about the incarcerated state and the 13th Amendment's effect. I'm saying if you if we control how this HR 40 is done that Sheila Jackson Lee has been propping up, if you could you can edu- you can um, look over that, I'll send it to you. But I'd be more than happy to come back on for 10 or 15 minutes and we chop it up because it's exactly in the lanes of what you're talking about. And, and I, well, I would like to think because I spent two years in the circle, I pushed a lot of that being in this. Okay. Can you speak uh, on some of it now? Because, I mean, that's what I was really looking forward to. I think Max was looking forward to the same thing. What exactly are in the proposals or what are in the edit, the suggested edit? This is what I was trying to say to you. I didn't I didn't know for sure what you gonna cover, so I didn't pull up all that stuff. But what I'll do is send it to you, then we can come back and talk. But roughly what I'm saying to you is if uh, if you do the dirty edits, that commission will be set up not to just study. It will be to study with a specific goal. So see for me to try to all the stuff you're talking about. It's just not gonna be as you said, somebody gets to run through twelve million dollars uh worth of money and then we get nothing out of it. As a matter of fact, to give you to encapsulate why I say it'd be better if we if we all read the same information and come back and talk about it in ten or fifteen minutes, it'll do justice to your audience. Because what I'm saying to you is, and I encapsulate it with this: we're confronted on Twitter with this. Sandy Darity said, "If they pass, and I'm paraphrasing, if they pass HR 40 as it is, 
it will become a $12 million pork barrel like the modern America has ever seen. And, and that's coming from a lot for a public uh, uh, academic that's been doing this work for 40 years, seven years to write this book. For him to come out with that kind of language on Twitter tells you there's something wrong with that, and we need to be working on changing it. So the things that we're talking about now, abolition gets addressed in this $12 million study. So then, like I said, activists and professors that understand it will be on the record instead of the narrative that we've been living with all of our damn life. That's what I'm saying to you, brothers. There's a room for change here. For what I see of H.R. Uh, 40, there's some room for us to have some real discussions there. I mean, just the, number one, the role of federal and state governments in supporting the institution of slavery. It doesn't give a time frame there. So they could be talking about right now, and we could be talking about right now in that part of the discussion. But the people who are proponents of it are not talking about it in the present sense. Everything is in the past tense. And number two, they say forms of discrimination in the public and private sectors against free slaves and their descendants. There's an issue there where with the word free slaves, but I really haven't thought about it too much, you know what I mean? So I'm not going to say too much on it. But, and their descendants. So this gives us the opportunity to show the forms of discrimination in the public and private sector through the prison industries. The racial aspects alone are mind-blowing. We already have the United Nations coming in to do a uh, study on systemic racism because of that. So, again, we could bring it up in there. And then the last one is the lingering negative effects of slavery on living African Americans in society. They didn't actually write that as a past tense. So we can literally have the conversation of the present tense, not the post-traumatic slave syndrome, but the present traumatic slave syndrome. Uh, so we can look into those things. As far as Brother Jerry is concerned, yeah, we, we, yeah, if we had actually breaks it down the way you're talking about it, past, present, and ongoing. You're spot on. Right, right. Unfortunately, the lead voices that you hear a lot from are not uh, from Brother Darity. Uh, Even from himself and his own uh, media that he puts out. Uh, Here's something from February 27th of this year, just a few months ago, where he was on the Washington Post Live. And he said, if you were to examine the American population as a whole, black Americans are about 13%, but possess less than 3% of the nation's wealth. And he said, any "Any serious conversation about closing racial wealth gaps has to consider reparations. So, you know, even in February, he really wasn't talking about the ongoing, but more of the past things. Uh, I'd like to look at this book and see what his ideas are. I have heard from you, I believe, that one was about doing it in stages rather than one lump sum, whatever we're going to do, but doing it in stages over generations, two to three generations uh, of doing it. Is that correct, Otis? Yeah, Max. Since I can't entice you to take the articles and come back as a guest, I'm going to make sure I get your address. I'm going to send you a copy of the book. So then uh, I think you'll be excited about how you see how things are structured. Then I'll also tell you, you can go to AmericanProject.us and find about 42 links uh, through Darity. And uh, quite a few of them, when it's not talking about just his book, 
they actually talk about the implications of uh, slavery and uh, the 13th, all of that. As a matter of fact, I had an exchange with him on Twitter where he said to, to Ava DuVernay that he agreed with me. He, she should have been more assertive about uh, slavery actually still being legal, even though she did an excellent film. So, I mean, I, I'm not here to uh, push it for you. I'm just telling you, I'll I, I be willing to let you go over it. I think we can have an interesting conversation in a couple of weeks. Okay, we'll, okay. we'll do that I just, then. Uh, go ahead, Yusuf. Yeah, I was going to say, I just found the link. This is uh, the Black American DOS Caucus, and inside that article is a link to the PDF of the letter sent by uh, Sandy Darity, and he lists uh, six edits in the uh, letter. I don't. This is my first time seeing it, so I don't know if there's more to it than just that. So, yeah, I think this is something that uh, we could definitely bring Otis back on, you know, with all of the information. Because, again, just looking at it, it's missing a lot, you know, just to say hey, it I, in a nice I'd be, be, be willing to work on getting uh, 10 or 15 minutes with Daddy so you can ask him yourself. I, I, that's how much I like your program. He, he knows I'm an abolitionist first, ADOS second. Right. <laughs> no, that, that, so that would be great if you could do that. Yeah, that would be great. We, we can, All right. Okay, so it looks like we're going to shelve this for now and continue on later with it. Uh, I want to be clear about my personal position. Don't speak for anybody but Max with this, in this case. Um, I am not against reparations. I'm completely for reparations, but I am for ending slavery more. And I think that there's an right. order of events that has to occur. You can't close the deal on reparations without closing the loophole that allows legal slavery to exist and without freeing the people who have been subject to this form of oppression that we see in the 21st century. So that's where my position is on it. If we can end slavery and free my people, I'd love to see them have land and education and and, uh, resources in order to do whatever it is they need to do. But until we end slavery, we are kind of putting the, well, not kind of, we are putting the cart before the horse. Um, right. Yusuf, unless you have any uh, final comments, I'll go, we'll go on to the next uh, topic that no, I want to cover before I need to break. Yeah, we can go on. We can go on. All right. Well, you know what? I, I'll give you the opportunity, man. There's four things that I wanted to talk, to cover over there. Um, is there another one that you want to follow up after reparations with? You can drive, man. Black you can drive. And good cops. Say again. I said you can drive wherever you want to go. Okay, from here. let's go into black on black crime. You know we've been dealing with that all of our lives for generation after generation after generation. They keep pointing to the black community and talking about how we're rapists and murderers and killers. There's memes go out today that I saw coming from the president talking about 99 or 98 percent of. All black people are killed by other black people. Um, They constantly are demonizing us on the issue of what we are doing to ourselves. 
now for, for me, it's not to say that there there are not terrible things happening in black communities. There are, but there's reasons for that. It, it didn't just appear out of thin air. These type of environments have been cultivated and built in order to create an environment that is ripe for slave catchers to come in and get you anytime they want to get you. Just to turn black-on-black crime, again, has no counterpart. There, there is no counterpart to it. You never hear the phrase white-on-white crime. You don't hear red-on-red. You don't hear brown-on-brown crime. You, you don't hear any kind of a national Mexican-on-Mexican Mexican crime or Chinese-on-Chinese. None of that ever comes up, ever. There was no right. media uh, group on earth that I know of that feels comfortable talking about white-on-white crime. But they had no problems at all using this uh, damaging uh, cycle uh, tactic on us in order to create uh, not only an image that black people are born criminals, but also an inspiration for us to be treated like that. Yusuf? You hit the nail on the head, Max, and I'm sure you were going to – mention it, but there, you know, uh, Michael Cord, the attorney out of Philadelphia, wrote a great article last year, last June, entitled No Such Thing as Black-on-Black Crime. And within the article, he makes a reference to Frankenstein, where he talks about, you know, most people think the name of the monster is Frankenstein, when in reality... Frankenstein is the doctor who created the monster. And so we can see the correlation to this. So he says that today's uh, so-called thugs, black so-called thugs and monsters are created by the evil American system that miseducates them, unemploys them, underemploys them, over-polices them, and over-incarcerates them. America is Dr. Victor Frankenstein. Mm. And that goes right in line with what you were just talking about, of how people are only looking at what's in front of their face, but they never want to go to what are the root causes. And most of the times when we hear black-on-black crime talked about, it's to counter something real that just happened. For instance, when George Floyd got killed. So we're not supposed to be upset about that because of black-on-black crime. Well, you name any time. Any time uh, the killing of a black person reaches national attention, the first, res- the first counter-response is black-on-black crime. As to say, you shouldn't be worried about this. You should be worried about that. To push our minds in another direction as if we can't do both. And what you mentioned about there being no alternative narrative, like there's nothing to compare it to. You and I discussed this the other day. That there are no statistics to compare black-on-black crime against because we have areas in the country where there are no black people and there's high crime rate. But when the person gets arrested, you you know, a white man, you know, kills his white neighbor, that's just crime. That's a crime committed by an individual. It's not a white-on-white crime. It's not labeled as that. It's just 
one person committing crime against another person. The only time race is involved is when they talk about a black person committing a crime against another black person, and it's deliberate, deliberate to be a narrative to redirect attention. Because anytime you bring up anything, they're going to say, well, what about Chicago? What about Baltimore? So these are these type of narratives that are thrown around to redirect the conversation, Max. Right. It's it's a false narrative. And it, like you just mentioned, it has nothing to compare it to. So if they say to you, wow, in this black neighborhood in Chicago or this predominantly black area in Chicago, six kids were shot. Well, they didn't tell you how many people were shot in Phoenix, Arizona, how many kids were shot there. They don't tell you how many kids right. uh, were shot in any other city or state. They just tell you about the black area. So you have nothing to compare it to. And automatically it's, wow, six dead kids. So you have nothing to compare it to. But, you know, there's this right. uh, article that I pulled up called uh, The Murder Map, Deadliest U.S. City. And you'll be surprised that the majority of the deadliest cities are not known for a large black population. Well, you know, these are places that are predominantly white where they're being affected by things like the opioid epidemic, and uh, their murder rates are extremely high, 15 per 100,000 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, for instance, Fort Wayne, Indiana, 15 per 100,000, Rockford, Mm. Illinois, 16 per 100,000, Syracuse, Mm. New York, 16 per 100,000. These are places that you're not known for their black communities. They're known for being predominantly white communities. And their murder rate is way up there. Um, let me see if I can pull up one more. Let's, here's a black community, right? Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia's uh, rate is, excuse me, while it loads, 17.7 per 100,000 in Atlanta, Georgia. But if you go just a couple states away, let's say, uh, pardon me because I'm clicking through this to get the states, uh, the cities and states throughout it. Akron, Ohio is 19 per 100,000 in Akron. Peoria, Illinois is 20 per 100,000. You know, so you could go through this whole list and see that these death rates or these murder rates is crazy all over the country. Chicago is 20.7 per 100,000. But Buffalo, New York is 22. <laughs> you know, Buffalo, New right. York is has more murders per 100,000 than freaking Chicago does. But somehow Chicago ends up on front page all the time. I don't right, because well, all we know about Buffalo is the weather. Right. And, and as I mentioned earlier before, there's reasons why things are the way they are. And one of the articles that really shows uh, how this occurred comes from the Newark Times, Newark, New Jersey. So the Newark Times, and the author is Marquise D.B., came out July 8, 2020, and it's called The List. And on the list, he traces it from uh, 16, 19, all the way up to 2020 with George Floyd. Uh, He tries to cover all the bases of what led us to this point. Um, You know, the 16, 19, the 20 Africans brought from Angola, 1640, the indentured servant John Punch, 1662, Virginia passes the hereditary slave law, uh, 1705, Virginia Slave Code. 1712, New York forbids free slaves from owning property. 
And he says, now you have stopped wealth, because they did. In 1740, South Carolina passes the Negro Act, making it illegal for slaves to raise food, earn money, and learn English. 1775 was when uh, Phyllis Wheatley writes her collection of poems on various subjects, religious and moral. 1776, Independence Day. 1777, Vermont, this is what he says, and this is the one where he got it wrong. He says, 1777, Vermont is the first state to abolish slavery. Ten years later, 44-year-old U.S. ambassador to France, Thomas Jefferson, begins his relationship with Sally Hemings, his 14-year-old slave. They have six kids together. The children are eventually set free, and because of their features, they pass into society and are documented as free white people. But it must also deny their father, who is uh, Thomas Jefferson. Anyway, that simple sentence in the beginning, Vermont is the first state to abolish slavery. They were not the first state to abolish slavery. They were the first state to make it constitutionally legal. They led the way in 1777 with their exception clause in their state constitution, which is in there right now, and said that you can be a slave for debts and the like. Whatever the hell the like means, but debts and the like is enough to make you a slave in Vermont. And they immediately started using convict leasing. But at that point, they were using European indentured servitude. And that's how the 13th Amendment actually started in 1777 Vermont. I could go down the list. He covers all the spots. There's only a couple in here he got wrong, but he did a damn good job of connecting the straight line from 1619 to 2020 through the use of chattel slavery and controlling people's lives and bodies. Yusuf or Otis? Uh, only thing I interject to you, because you know I've, I've said it before in your presence, he did a great timeline, but I can't remember the exact event you said in 1712, but I told you one of the first historical markers that made me get interested in history is right across the river from where I live now, 1710 meritorious manumission. What was happening is mm-hmm. there's so many slavery and independent uh, plantations, small and large, you know, with masters and workers coming up dead. So they started 1710 meritorious manumission, and uh, it goes through, like, giving you uh, bales of hay, money, whatever, depending on what information you gave to protect the plantation owner. So now you that's what led to them cranking down in 1712. Just want to throw that in. You know what, Max? If we can... Yes, if we can do the uh, music break now, because since you brought up the 13th Amendment, I'd like to go into some updates in the courts dealing with the 13th Amendment, you know, because we covered a lot of that in our, uh, what was it, Episode 7, the 13th Amendment trap door. And there were many cases that I covered in that episode, and there, you know, more that I've recently come across that could give, you know, some further, uh, shed some further light on those. So if you don't mind taking the music break now, which is, I guess, two or three minutes ahead of the break, so we could just take that now if you want to. There was a little bit of commentary I want to add, and I'll do that, and then we'll go to the music break, all right? Um, Okay. So from the list, I did want to mention one other point where he got to 1865. I didn't want to leave that unsaid. 
uh, I think that he got it right. He says, number 21, 1865, Juneteenth officially frees 250,000 slaves in Texas. 13th Amendment abolishes slavery officially, in quotations. Fine print allows slavery to continue for prisoners. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted one year later as payback for losing its slaves, the Vagrancy Act of 66 forced any black man who looked unemployment, um, unemployed or homeless back into prison and slavery. So the author here is clearly telling you that it did not end and showing you in this short paragraph how it continued on. So kudos to him. And I want to read something to close out this whole black-on-black crime thing. They never talk about white-on-white crime. And white-on-white white crime is big pharma selling opioids to U.S. citizens that kill thousands every year. To understand just how bad the opioid epidemic has gotten, consider these statistics. Drug, drug overdoses in 2015 were linked to more deaths than car crashes or guns. And in, in fact, killed more people than car crashes and gun homicides combined. Drug overdoses in 2015 also killed more people in the U.S. than HIV slash AIDS did during its peak in 1995. But I guess that doesn't count because there was white deaths, legal drugs, and don't give me any crap about opioids killing people everywhere. Approximately 80% of the global opioid supply is consumed in the United States. Pain drugs yeah. are the second largest pharmaceutical class globally after cancer medicines. There were about 300 million pain prescriptions written in 2015, $24 billion a year shared among U.S. corporations. I guess, I guess if it's a white-collar killing, then it doesn't count as a death or even as a crime. All right, we're going to get into our musical segment. Today we got Rage Against the Machine, killing in the name of, with a little something extra from Max. Abolition. Abolition. I ain't trying to hurt nobody. I've never hurt anybody. It's been quite a while, so they plotting to come in here and disturb the peace here. They've already disturbed the peace. I'm not a criminal. An officer, only identified as Officer First Class Ruby, exchanged gunfire with James, killing her and injuring her son. The Baltimore County State's Attorney determined the shooting was justified. Was justified. Was justified. Now you do what they told you. Now you do what they told you. Now 
you do what they told you. Against the Machine, killing in the name of, with clips from the Baltimore police murder of Corinne Gaines and the attempted murder of her then five-year-old son, Cody. Also clips of corporate news propagandists feeding us the justified pie. Welcome back to Abolition Today. You, sir? 
Hey, man, you tapped into my Spotify, man. I'm telling you. It's like you got a hold of my Spotify playlist this week. <laughs> you know, classic, and I, you know, Zach, yeah, Zach and Brad and Timmy and Tommy, like, friends of mine, man. So, yeah, I feel like fighting right now. And I've been in the fight in decades, man. <laughs> Not in a physical, you know, hand-to-hand combat fight, but I feel like fighting right now. I, I want to give a chance for Otis to say something if he'd like, but before that, I just want to remind people that this show is uh, PG-13 rated and it's listed on education. We are not here to censor artists who are saying what they need to be saying. If they said it, that's what they meant, and we're very selective right. with what we play. So uh, we as hosts do not use a lot of adult language, but if the artist is using it, more power to them as long as they're using it for a reason. Otis, what you think, brother? That's right. Otis, oh, let oh. me take you off mute. My bad, Otis. Yeah, I took, I took, I just took him off. He should be on in a second. All right, there I, you go. I, I did. You and I had a side conversation about the power of music, but I thought I probably hear something like on several years shows. You know, the music is completely new to me. But I got thirty-five and forty-year-old nephews, so you you right in my wheelhouse with that one. And plus that, I, I attended bar as a rock and roll bartender for three years in Dallas, Texas. So I do it all. <laughs> you, 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 you included the old man in the five. <laughs> word, brother, word. Uh, I was happy to add that to our, our abolition, abolitionist music playlist for sure, because it definitely fits. You know, they're justifying everything that they do, uh, and uh, you, we're just following the dictates now, particularly during this COVID yeah. season. If they say go die, you go die. And, then, you know, it's just puppet land out here right now. Nobody's thinking for themselves. They're waiting to be told. <laughs> it's terrible. Well, when I say nobody, I only mean that generalistically. I uh, don't mean everybody. Right. But anyway, so Yusuf, let's get into this 13th Amendment. We still got two topics to cover, and the 13th Amendment being the foremost of them. You know, we did mention that during the slavery reparations discussion, nobody's talking about uh, slavery in the present tense. And the 13th Amendment is the reason that it's in the present tense. So Yusuf? Yeah, I didn't know if you wanted to mention some of the things that you had listed and then I'd go into what I'm going to do or if you want me to start it off and um you go ahead and start it off. You know, I I do a lot of research every week as you know, we both do. And we only use right. a small fraction of it. Most of the research that we do is so we understand what we're talking about better. So we're able to condense the information presented to people in a way that they can uh, relate with and understand because people are looking for understanding. So in order to do that, we have to do a hell of a lot of research, and there's a lot that goes on the cutting room floor, which is why we look at our archives as a form of cultural treasure, you know, because <laughs> we only get into a portion of it. But most of it will be available on Abolition Today thanks to our teammate uh, Jeanette Smith. Yeah, so okay, and again, I encourage all of our listeners to go back to episode seven, the Thirteenth Amendment trap door, because we really went in depth. We showed how the American prison system started, you know, going through the 
Pennsylvania system, the Auburn system, into San Quentin. We showed, you know, uh, how the 13th Amendment came about, the 14th and 15th Amendment. We've mentioned several cases like the slaughterhouse cases and the civil rights cases as to how the courts first started interpreting the 13th Amendment. Because when it was first being interpreted by the courts back in the earliest case that's mentioned is called the slaughterhouse cases. That was the 1873 case, and it was dealt with from the labor standpoint, just de- dealing with regular people out on the streets, you know, comparing what they were what what they were being subjected to. They were comparing it to slavery, and so the courts were having to interpret cases of these natures, slaughterhouse cases, the civil rights cases, which was in 1883. Uh, then we went into the convict leasing, but one of the areas that I wanted to speak about is sort of like current issues as to how the how the courts are dealing with the Thirteenth Amendment. Because when we mention you know cases from the 1800s, cases from the early 1900s, I mean we're talking over a century old, and surprisingly. Most of these cases are still relevant. These cases haven't been overturned by the courts, and the courts still interpret any prisoner coming to the courts with a either coming under 1983, you know, U.S. 1983, which is a means of them being able to bring lawsuits against the prisons, or if they're coming with a 13th Amendment claim, they rely on these rulings in these old cases. And there's one particular case I just came across yesterday, so I really need to do a deep dive on it. This case is called Richardson versus McKnight. It's uh, cited as 521 U.S. 399. It's from 1997. And it says in, in the summary, private prison corporations are driven by markets' competitive pressures. And when you compare this case to Bennett versus Frank, which is 395 F3D409, which was decided in 2005, where the court distinguished prisoners from employees because the purpose of their work is either to offset costs, keep them out of trouble, or equip them with skills for the outside world. So it's showing that the courts are still conflicted into how to deal with these cases in the courts because one side is saying, okay, it's a problem with the private prisons because they're driven by profit. And then on the other side is saying, well, you know, it's a good thing because they're learning skills that they can bring off into the streets. And we know that that's a fallacy as you know, Max is probably going to mention in one of his cases. There's another case where, it's called West versus Atkins, 47 U.S. 42. That was decided in 1988. This is a case where it deals with private contractors working in the prisons. And that's most commonly in dealing with health care providers. That health care providers, this case ruled that health care providers can be sued. And so... It says causes of actions against private contractors who provide medical services for inmates. So 
that opened the door for them to be able to start bringing claims against these medical providers. But again, this is stuff where for every one case, you know, that the court rules one way, they rule another way in three other cases. So it's getting tossed around back and forth. Another one that we want to look at is Watson versus Graves. This is cited as 909F2D1549. Not sure the year of this one. I didn't write it in my notes anywhere. Let me check and see if I have it in my notes, what year this one was from. This is also from 1990. In this case, I lost my spot for a second. The court has held that the requirement that incarcerated prisoners work without pay does not constitute involuntary servitude in violation of the 13th Amendment. We agree that a prisoner who is not sentenced to hard labor retains his 13th Amendment rights. However, in order to prove a violation of the 13th Amendment, the prisoner must show he was subjected to involuntary servitude or slavery. Double talk, reverse talk. <laughs> Involuntary servitude is defined as an action by the master causing the, re- the servant to have or to be or to believe he has no way to avoid continued service or confinement. When an employee has a choice, even though it is a painful one, there is no involuntary servitude. A showing of compulsion is thus a prerequisite to proof of involuntary servitude. So you can hear the twisted language in there where they say, for the one side, if you haven't been sentenced to hard labor, then you have your 13th Amendment rights. But at the same time, you have to prove that your 13th Amendment rights have been violated because you're being subjected to involuntary servitude or slavery. Double talk, twisting you around, walking you in different directions. And then the final one that I want to mention, sorry, say that again, Max? Propaganda techniques, classic propaganda techniques. Yeah, Yeah, they're twisting it around. Because if you look at the case, Samuel, it's Mary versus Mississippi Department of Corrections. And can't believe if that was going through my notes, I wasn't actually putting the year on these cases. It's but okay. it's going to be up on the page. page. Yeah, it'll be on the yeah. page. And so in that case, oh my goodness, come on. I just had a hiccup with my system right now. You need me to give you a pause and cover yeah, something? Yeah, go ahead and jump in for a second, Max, because I don't know what's going on over here right now. Okay, there's a couple of things that I did want to bring out. And, uh, you know, the 13th Amendment is always talked about uh, in regards to slavery, but it covers more than just slavery. It says, this comes from Fine Laws, United States 10th Circuit Case and Opinions, in caselaw.finelaw.com. Although the 13th Amendment by its terms applies to slavery and involuntary servitude, Supreme Court precedents confirms Congress's authority to legislate against slavery's badges and incidents as well. 
In particular, the Supreme Court held in Jones versus Alfred H. Mayer, CO 392 U.S. 49, 1968, a case permitting a federal private right of action against private individuals for housing discrimination, that Congress itself has power to determine those badges and incidents. Section 249A1 rests on the notion that a violent attack on an individual because of his or her race is a badge or incident of slavery. Congress reached this conclusion by accounting for the meaning of race, in quotations, when the 13th Amendment was adopted. The state of mind of the attacker and the attack itself, by so doing, and under the authority of Jones, we conclude Congress rationally determined that racially motivated violence is a badge or incident of slavery against which it may legislate through its power to enforce the 13th Amendment. Now, one more, and then I'll pass it back to you. We were talking about involuntary servitude. And this comes mm-hmm. from the United States Petitioner versus Ike Komiski et al. Held, for purposes of criminal prosecution under 241 and 1584, the term involuntary servitude necessarily means a condition of servitude in which the victim is forced to work for the defendant by the use of threat or physical restraint or physical injury or by the use or threat of coercion through law or the legal process. Mind you, this is happening right now in Angola. Right we just talked about it from the very beginning. This is happening right now, illegal, listed right here. Uh, this definition, definition encompasses cases in which the defendant holds the victim in servitude by placing him or her in fear of such physical restraint or injury or legal coercion. The government cannot prove a conspiracy to violate rights secured by the 13th Amendment without proving that the conspiracy involved the use or threatened use of physical or legal coercion. I mean, the 95% plea bargain rate fits that right there. The fact that the amendment excludes from its prohibition involuntary servitude imposed as punishment for crime where the party shall have been duly convicted indicates that the amendment's drafters thought that involuntary servitude generally includes situations in which the victim is compelled to work by law. Moreover, the fact that the phrase involuntary servitude was intended to cover those forms of compulsory labor akin to African slavery. It's already all against the law if you use these. There was a, uh, a recent video that we played, I think it was in April, where we had a professor of the Constitution come on, and he was saying, you know, there's a Black Lives Matter movement right now. If they really adopted and used this 13th Amendment, it could change everything. And he's right. If they adopted this right. tactic, it could change everything. Yusuf, pass it back. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, in Pollock versus Williams, which is listed as 322 U.S. 4, the case back in 1994, the court, this is the United States Supreme Court saying this. They said the undoubted aim of the 13th Amendment, as implemented by the Anti-Peonage Act, was not merely to end slavery, but to maintain a system of completely free and voluntary labor throughout the United States. And this same court went further in a case, it's uh, 
Pitchkey, that's spelled P-I-S-C-H-K-E, versus Lichter, L-I-T-S-C-H-E-R, where they held the 13th Amendment, bids involuntary servitude, has an express exception for persons in prison pursuant to conviction of a crime. Nor are we pointed to or can think of any other provision of the Constitution that might be violated by the decision of a state to combine a convicted prisoner in a prison owned by a private firm rather than by a government. A number of cases assume the propriety of such confinement. It mentions again Richardson versus McKnight, Spencer versus Lee, Street versus correction or versus uh, CCA. One judge has said the practice is constitutional. And to our knowledge, no judge has opined to the contrary. The Wisconsin statute authorizing transfers to private prisons requires those prisons to adhere to the same standards of reasonable and human care as the prisoners will receive in an appropriate Wisconsin institution, which we know is not happening. And no evidence has presented that this requirement is being or will be flouted, let alone that the private prisons will fall far below uh, federal Eighth Amendment standards for the treatment of prisoners. A prisoner has a legally protected interest in the conduct of his keeper, but not in the keeper's identity. Wisconsin's prisoners have no doubt of the complete lack of merit for their 13th Amendment claims. This is a case that was recently brought, and it's one of the ones that they reference a lot in a lot of the the newer cases. And when we look at it, every single case that we come across, the narrative is the same. The narrative is the same, that basically we're not going to do anything about it because we're relying on the exception clause. Every case, it goes right back to the exception clause. And when we mentioned the case that was called the civil rights cases, this was the case where the 13th and 14th Amendments were first interpreted by the courts as separate. So once they were able to separate the 13th and 14th Amendments, that means that the only way that they can get any type of relief is if they were bringing, they can't get the relief. That's what it basically did, because you're saying if you're suing under the 14th Amendment, they're going to say, no, you lose all of your 14th Amendments because of the 13th Amendment. If you're suing, you know, pursuant to the 13th Amendment, they're going to say, no, you know, it's justified because of the exception clause. So it's a lose-lose situation. And, you know, I wanted to get into a lot of other things, but we're going to cover so many things every episode when we start talking about the Hawes-Cooper Act or the Ashurst-Sumners mm-hmm. Act. You know, it's just so many things to get into. The Percy Amendment, like, we could never cover everything in one episode. And this is why we encourage everyone, you know, to go back, listen to all of the episodes, follow the links that we're sharing, because... Everything is connected, as you realize. Every episode is connected to previous episodes. But as Max and I always discuss, each episode is really us cramming three or four episodes into one episode because it's just so much in detail. You know, we may 
we may have, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 links for this episode that are going to appear on the page, but that doesn't account for about the hundred that we just came to the table with to say, okay, let's see if we can get this on. It's just so much going right. on. And I'm going to, I'm going to close it there, Max, as I know we're starting to get short on time. Well, I would like to give uh, Otis an opportunity to chime in on this 13th Amendment conversation, uh, and then I'm going to briefly cover the final part of our conversation in regards to good cops. So, Otis, would you like to say something about this 13th Amendment issue? Uh, Max, I'll just reiterate where I started off. It's a pleasure to be in the company of you two gentlemen again, but I told you, when people kept asking where did I go, I told you I started that hashtag Abe's Big Lie, A B E S, like Abe Lincoln's Abe's Big Lie. You'll find out that for the last six years I've been putting stuff in there, and it takes you in all kinds of directions in terms of the 13th Amendment and what you get wrong if you don't understand that everything that comes after except means that's what counts. You're but can be legally enslaved, put into servitude, and there is no way out. Period. No doubt, brother. Well, Otis, I want to thank you for joining us as a co-guest tonight, a guest co-host, and uh, I appreciate your wisdom as always and your efforts out there uh, trying to make changes in minds that are hard to change, brother. (laughs) It can be frustrating sometimes, I understand. So we appreciate you being here today. Yusuf, did definitely. you want to say anything to me? Yeah, definitely. And I, I, have your, I have your number now, uh, Otis, so I'm definitely going to be giving you a call, man, because you and I haven't spoken in so long, man, but it was definitely a pleasure having you here, you know, and we know you're a wealth of knowledge. You, you kind of withheld tonight, you know, I guess because it's your first time on and you wanted to be conscious of the time and everything, but we definitely, you know, will have you back at a, you know, at a, in future episodes to where, you know, I, w- I want you to be able to turn loose maybe one time or two, you know, because you're a wealth of knowledge. I tell you this in all due respect, because you, Max, Max Foster knows the love I have for him. But I tell you, I have no problem not being a drum major, man. Even that tuba player needed in the band. So I'm all good with that. <laughs> and I've been watching y'all grow in and put it together. And I told Max, all due respect, I see you kind of honing it and getting it where you want it to go. I love it. I I tell people all the time, listen in. It's just a 60-minute class. It's, you know, it can't do you no harm. Right. No doubt. You know, you say the same thing I say brother. to Max all the time. I like Max driving, man. Let me hold the shotgun and you drive, man. (laughs) (laughs) Otis, we don't want you to leave, brother. We want you to hang out and listen to the rest of the program. We still got some jewels to drop before we're done tonight, all right? Uh, So we're going to come to... uh, I I, I didn't didn't even look at the clock. I thought it was over. I'm sorry. No doubt, brother. Hang out for us, all right? All right, so... we said we were going to cover these four things. There's one left, and there's really not enough time to address it, but I can tell you two things. Uh, one, we are going to do, and we were going to do it a couple of weeks ago, but things had to change, a show specifically titled The Birth of the Slave Catcher, because we wanted to show you from the beginning till now where cops came from, 
how they were formed, what changes they went through, and what purpose they serve today. So I promise you that we will definitely get that one out. It might just be next week. We'll decide tomorrow during planning. Uh, in my opinion, at this point in time, there is no such thing as a good cop. If the system itself is evil, no matter how good you are, if you're a part of it, you are perpetuating evil. There was no good slave catchers. There was no good Nazis. And there certainly is no good cops. It's a profession. It's not a race uh, as some like to portray it, Blue Lives Matter. It's a freaking profession that was born out of slave catching. And then it has not changed their purposes yet. You could save a thousand lives a day. But if you take one willingly, you're a murderer. You could help a hundred people a day stay free. But if you enslave one, you're a slaver. That's how it works. All right. So with that being said, we're going to come up on the summation of our program. Yusuf, would you like to manage that one? Or you want me to do it? You know, you can have it this week, Max. You can have it this week. I bet you say that to all the co-hosts. <laughs> As Yusuf has mentioned, you know, so much to say, so little time. This is an issue that can be talked about for years and needs to be talked about for years. Uh, just, you know, from our perspective, there's things that we're thinking of and, and moving towards that have a 10-year date on them. So we know this is a long-term effort. We are not... Uh, naive to think that something that's been going on for over 400 years is going to stop just because we were born and wanted it to stop. We're going to do our best, and we're going to pray, and we believe God is on our side. Our summation, basically, for this week, uh, we've covered the four topics, 13th Amendment, slavery reparations, black-on-black crime, and we will be covering in detail good cop, bad cop. Uh, but you got a little bit of a story from me. Uh, We'll be talking about these issues over the years to come, over the weeks and months to come as well. The 13th Amendment is going to be revisited often. Uh, And at some point, if we're lucky, we'll get to where we can have a real conversation about slavery reparations, where the conversation has already been had about whether or not slavery is still legal and whether or not it needs to end, as if that can even be a question. And then we can talk about how we move forward from there. Uh, Brother Yusuf, any, uh, we're going to get into our final comments or final quotes for the evening. Uh, do you have one that you'd like to share? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with Old Faithful this week, you know, and it's if you're not ready to die for it, put the word freedom out of your vocabulary. El Hajj, Malik, El Shabazz formerly known as Malcolm X. Amen, brother. I want to give a shout-out to our sponsors and partners, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, I Am We Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, Millions of Prisoners, our same Urge, Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, and Punks for Pro- Progress. Uh, we want to say thank you to those who are supporters and listeners program. I have uh, two quotes. One is mine and one is from O.A. Blinken. Mine is this. I know some of the hard truths spoken tonight may be offensive to some, will alienate others. So let my intentions be clear. I'm not trying to be famous or popular. I'm trying to be right and correct. 
Better to speak truth in the darkness than to lie in the light. And here's a quote by Abraham Lincoln. I am a firm believer in the people. If given the truth, they can be depended upon to meet any national crisis. This great point is to bring them the real facts. And that was Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I appreciate you being here. You could have been anywhere, but you came to listen to us tonight. Uh, Our final segment is really powerful. As always, we're going to finish a trilogy of classic music that we played here today. It began with Gil Scott Haram, and then we went on to Rage Against the Machine, and we're going to keep that going to the final end. Uh, Yusuf, you want to do the final introduction? Once again, I'm Matt Crawford, and I'll see you next week. It is definitely my pleasure, definitely my pleasure to bring in our final segment, Ozzie Davis Reads Frederick Douglass, Part 17. Wow, Part 17, and our Bridging the Gap series. This one is entitled Three Boxes, followed by Black Rage from Lauren Hill. We'll be back July 19th, inshallah, God willing. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube page. It's youtube.com slash abolition today for all the news, information, and music you hear on this program. Until next week, think about abolition today. Follow us on Facebook, Abolition Today. That's our Facebook page, and we'll have other social media contacts coming up in the near future. Until next week, peace and blessings be upon you all. Thanks for tuning in. Peace. Abolition Abolition. Today. It was my good fortune to be present at Abraham Lincoln's inauguration in March 1865, after his re-election as president, and to hear on that occasion his remarkable inaugural address. A series of important events followed soon after the second inauguration of Mr. Lincoln, conspicuous amongst which was the fall of Richmond. The collapse of the rebellion was now not long delayed, though it did not perish without adding to its long list of atrocities, one which sent a thrill of horror throughout the civilized world in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, a man so amiable, so kind, so humane and honest that one is at a loss to know how he could have had an enemy on earth. I was in Rochester when the news of Mr. Lincoln's death was received. Our citizens, not knowing what else to do in the agony of the hour, betook themselves to City Hall. Though all hearts ached for utterance, few felt like speaking. But I was called upon and spoke out of the fullness of my heart. And happily, I gave expression to so much of the soul of the people present that my voice was several times utterly silenced by the sympathetic tumult of the great audience. I have resided long in Rochester, and made many speeches there which more or less touched the hearts of my hearers. But never till this day was I brought into such close accord with them. When the war for the Union was substantially ended and peace dawned upon the land, when the gigantic system of American slavery was finally abolished and forever prohibited by the organic law of the land, a strange feeling came over me. My great and exceeding joy over these stupendous achievements, especially over the abolition of slavery, which had been the deepest desire and the great labor of my life, was slightly tinged with a feeling of sadness. 
the anti-slavery platform had performed its work and my voice was no longer needed. What should I do? The answer was not long in coming. Though slavery was abolished, the wrongs of my people were not ended. Though they were not slaves, they were not yet quite free. No man can be truly free whose liberty is dependent upon the thought, feeling, and action of others, and who has himself no means in his own hands for guarding, protecting, defending, and maintaining that liberty. Yet the Negro, after his emancipation, was precisely in this state of destitution. The law on the side of freedom is of great advantage only where there is power to make that law respected. The government felt that it had done enough for the former slaves. It had made them free, and henceforth they must make their own way in the world. Yet they had none of the conditions for self-preservation or self-protection. They were free from the individual masters, but the slaves of society. The old master class simply drove them off the plantation and told them they were no longer wanted there. I therefore soon found that the Negro still had a cause and that he needed my voice and pen with others to plead for it. I called upon the government to assist the landless Negroes of the South by colonizing them on lands abandoned by the slaveholders as they had retreated before the advancing Union Army. I urged further that these former slaves be equipped with implements to till the soil and arms to defend themselves. From the first, I saw no chance of bettering the condition of the freedman until he should cease to be merely a freedman and should become a citizen. I insisted that there was no safety for him, nor for anybody else in America outside the American government, that to guard, protect, and maintain his liberty, the freedman should have the ballot, that the liberties of the American people were dependent upon the ballot box, the jury box, and the cartridge box, that without these, no class of people could live and flourish in this country. And this was now the word for the hour with me, and the word to which the people of the North willingly listened when I spoke. However, regarding as I did, the elective franchise as one of the great powers by which all civil rights are obtained, enjoyed, and maintained under our form of government, and the one without which freedom to any class is delusive if not impossible, I set myself to work with whatever force and energy I possessed to secure this power for the recently emancipated millions. Suffering and worsening Black human packages Tied up in strings Black rage can come from all These kinds of things Black rage founded on Blatant denial Green economic Subsistence survival Deafening silence And social control Black rage is founded on Wounds in the soul When the dogs bite, when the bees sing, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember all these kinds of 